Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bolick, your host. And today we are talking about one of my most favorite therapy topics. We're talking about apraxia of speech. I love motor speech. You know why I love motor speech? Because I'm not a very good sit-down speech therapist. I just don't do that really well. And I like to move and groove. And I think the apraxia of speech diagnosis, I think it's fascinating. I think it's very individual. I love the puzzle piece part of it to try to figure out what makes it work or doesn't make it work and how to help a little child get successful. And I think it's just fascinating and fun and interesting. It makes my brain work. I love that. And again, you get to move and groove and I like to move and groove. Speech therapists, I think a lot of times we're not really taught to move our bodies or move our bodies much in therapy or have the child move much in therapy. I hear that a lot. I love to work with PT because they get them moving. Well, I can get them moving. Nobody says that speech therapists can't help a child move and they can't move in therapy. So apraxia of speech, it's a motor speech disorder and problem. So you have to help the child move their face and articulators to produce a sound. And that also starts to involve the rest of the body. And so I love it. So today we are talking about apraxia of speech, identification, diagnosis, and where to start. So there we go. But hey, here we go. Um, First, identification of apraxia of speech. So let's think about it. A child comes in and they're not talking. Now, as speech therapists, how often do you see this? That's what we do every day, right? So that's not a new thing. So we got to figure out, okay, why aren't they talking? And in one 30-minute or hour-long evaluation session, it's going to be very hard to, in that short period of time, diagnose apraxia of speech. Now, there's definite characteristics, and we're going to talk about those right now. You can definitely suspect that. I normally will not say to a family, oh, he's got apraxia of speech after the first one hour. I need to know this little person better. I can still write my goal plan. I can still write my vow. I can still do all of those things, but I don't have to use the words apraxia of speech. I'm not hiding anything from the family, but I just want to be sure. Because as soon as you tell a family, oh, I think he's got apraxia, they're going to Google that. All kinds of bells and whistles are going to go off and stuff like that. So, you know, I want to be sure before I start to take them down that road. And then I want to take them down the road with me, meaning I'm partnering with them. They're coming in to see me for therapy. I'm in it with them. Like here, we're in the boat together. Here's your oar. Start paddling. And so if that's the case, I think your child has a proxy of speech, then I want to be very prepared to help them understand what that means versus just saying it and then say, hey, Google it, because that's not a partner. That's a I don't know what that is, but it's not a partner. So child comes in and they're not talking. Well, our job is to figure out, okay, why aren't they talking? And what is the issue here? So for a child with a proxy of speech or who I suspect can be apraxic, then there's a couple of definite hallmark things that is there. So these are the signs to look for. You do a language test. That's normally where I start with a language test. So you've done the PLS five or whatever language test you may choose. And right now I'm talking about a child who's probably under five because those are who you're going to see first. They're not talking. They're under five. They've been referred probably a two, three-year-old. So you do a language test. Receptively, they come out normal or above. Expressively, if you gave the PLS five and they're three or under, they're not going to look too bad expressively because up till three, you don't have to do a lot of quality stuff to score pretty well on the PLS five. So it's more quantity. Are they saying five words? Are they saying 10 words? Can they identify pictures? Can they name pictures? But you can do it, but you don't have to do a lot of quality, just quantity. Older than three, though, the bottom starts to fall out because then that's where you have to do more quality stuff. Naming more variety of pictures, using ING, using S, answering questions. There's more specifics there. Prior to that, you don't have to do a lot of that and you can score pretty good. But normally 
kids with apraxia of speech, their receptive skills look really good, meaning they're understanding everything you're saying. They can follow one-step directions. I mean, they're a lot of times following two-step directions. They identify objects, identify pictures. They are playing appropriately with toys, making great eye contact. They're doing all the age-appropriate language and play skills, but what they say is pretty minimal. So a lot of times verbally, what you're hearing is sounds they're saying. So they may use like the same type of sound, like a D sound or a K sound or a G sound with a certain vowel. So they may say duh, duh, duh for like everything. Sounds in their repertoire are very, very limited. So you've done the language test. The receptive skills are normal or above. Expressive skills, maybe not so bad, or they're very low. One of the two. Maybe you've done the PLS, their expressive skills. They're not, you know, maybe low normal, but really not too delayed. Maybe mild, maybe moderate, maybe But the quality, so when you really start to look at the quality of what they're doing, the quality is not there, meaning that when they say different words or sounds for words, they're pretty much saying the same thing, like duh, they might vary it a little bit, guh, kuh, ka. They may have sort of the same type of vowel or the same one or two consonants they're saying. So not a lot of variety there. Also, expressively, you know, if you've got a three-year-old and receptively, they're pretty high up there, but expressively, they're not doing a variety of sounds. So then I start to ask the parents some questions. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, expressively, they can do everything within normal limits or above. So obviously, somebody at home is talking to them. They're reading to them. They're talking to them. They're explaining things because the child wouldn't receptively be at that level if somebody wasn't. So think about what's happening with the child in their environment. Are they in daycare? Are they at home? Are they with grandma? Are they with neighbor? Somebody's talking to this child on a regular basis. So that makes me start to think, then why aren't they talking? Why isn't their expressive skills up with their receptive skills? There's got to be a reason. So if they've had normal environmental stimulation and they have normal cognitive ability, then why isn't their expressive skills staying up with that? Well, there could be a couple of different reasons. One, hearing. So you want to ask, okay, have this child has a lot of ear infections. Oh, and the parents are like, oh my gosh, well, they've had like six of them or seven of them within a last year period. Well, then that's the first place I go. So let's look at the hearing. Have they had a full audiological assessment? Have they seen an ENT? Have you talked to the pediatrician about that? So then I start to go down, do they snore? You know, if they snore, and they've had a lot of ear infections, they probably have enlarged adenoids and they potentially could need PE tubes, pressure equalizing tubes. But that's where you make a call to the pediatrician and say, hey, what do you think about maybe referral to the ENT and get that lem disordered out, sort of some medical management. They absolutely think you need to go ahead and start seeing the child in therapy. I know some speech therapists disagree with that, but this child has to communicate today and the fluid in their ears is going to fluctuate because they have had five ear infections in the last year. They may or may not have a lot of fluid in their ear today. It's going to fluctuate, but they need some medical management. They need to go to the doctor, but I also recommend therapy and I start it. So if they had a lot of ear infections, then usually that's the reason for, okay, probably not apraxia, a lot of ear infections. So then I go down that road. But then so I ask the question, normal, receptive, mild to moderate, expressive, and it's not a hearing thing. Okay, so we ruled out the hearing thing. They haven't had any ear infections at all. So then I start to look at the situation that's happening. And I'll say to the family, so when they want something, what do they do and they can't get to it? The family will say, oh, well, they just reach for it and grunt. Or they come get me and take me to it and I get it for them. Or they just have a fallout tantrum. And I'll say, okay, so there's a reason that they're doing that. So why are they doing that? Is it a proxy or is it something else? Then I start with some more testing to try to figure it out. And I start to pay attention to their speech. If they're only saying one type of sound like duh, 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 ka, 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 but they're using it a lot, meaning like they're trying to talk to you, but you're not getting it. That's different than a child who wants to communicate, but then they just fall out with a quick temper tantrum. That is their communication system. And it's very effective. 
you know, because I'm going to get what they want or do something to make them stop having that temper tantrum pretty quick. And probably everybody in the house is too. So this child has figured out, hey, look, if I have a full out temper tantrum, I don't have to use words. People can come running, jumping, hopping and bopping, and I don't have to do anything but have this fallout temper tantrum. And they're going to figure out and give me some attention or give me what I want. So a child that goes from zero to 180 with a full out temper tantrum I don't necessarily think right off first apraxia. So then I'll start doing some therapy to figure out if I teach them, can I get them to do something to get something? Will they come on board with me? A lot of times the kids who are doing fallout temper tantrum like very quickly and they're using that for their communication system. It's harder to teach them to do like a sign for more or a request for me or to knock on the top of a lid and open the box up for something because that temper tantrum is so effective. It's so much better for them to get immediate attention than knocking on a lid and open up a toy. So it takes a minute or two to get that. Usually children with apraxia, I can teach those other things pretty quick because they're not having a fallout temper tantrum on the floor immediately. So if you're saying kids with apraxia definitely have temper tantrums, yes, they have temper tantrums, but just give me three seconds and I'll explain. Now you get a different category of child and they are receptive skills are very high. Expressive skills, there's definitely a discrepancy. Expressive skills are lower. Receptive skills are higher. The quality of speech is really, really poor, meaning they're only using a few sounds, a few vowels. They don't really combine sounds together. And when they're doing jargon, it's more of a, there's not a lot of variety in the sounds. They're not imitating anything. Hallmark of apraxia is not imitating. They're not imitating anything. They're not motivated to imitate. When you say, say red, say ball, they're not doing it. And their sounds are very similar, non-specific, and the same overall. And the quality is very poor. Then I'm thinking maybe we're dealing with the motor speech problem and it could be apraxia, but I don't know yet for sure. So then I go and do what other types of assessment. So that's the first thing that gets me. So in terms of identification, those are the things I look at first. Expressive high, receptive low, quality of speech sounds are producing very poor. They may only be doing like one or two consonant sounds, maybe just one vowel sound, but they're trying to communicate with you in that way. Or they may use a little bit of sounds, but they're not that interested in communicating with you overall because think about it. This kid's smart, but he's never had any success in being able to say anything and get anything back because nobody understands him. So eventually he's like, look, I'm not messing with you people. You don't understand me anyway. I know what I want. I'll just go get it and do it my own thing. But they're not really tantruming. They've just pretty much cut you out because you're not helping them anyway. And they've kind of written verbal communication off. So a lot of times these kids might be using some sounds in, in play, but they're not very different. But a lot of times some of these kids have sort of were using them and then they stopped, not because it may, it's an autism thing, because usually these kids' social skills and pragmatic skills are very high and they're doing a lot of eye contact. They're responding to you as a person. They're interengaging with you in play, but not really trying to say anything to you because their attempts to do all that in the past have probably not been very successful, meaning you don't understand them. So they're like, eh, whatever. <laughs> they kind of wrote you off. So those types of kids, that started to really think, hmm, maybe we're dealing with a motor speech problem. So then I go to do an oral motor assessment. So the first thing I do is I use a lot of the Deborah Beckman stuff. She has a nice oral motor assessment in her class. If you've taken it, I don't know, but it's a great class to take. I think it's a great oral motor foundation class. It's got some great content, but there's a nice oral motor assessment in there that she teaches. So I would recommend taking that if you haven't. But she has a nice oral motor assessment. And through the years, I do that. But I also have adapted a few things of my own as well. And with that, so I do an assessment of the lips, cheeks, tongue, and jaw. So for the lips, I want to know if they can pucker. Ooh, ee, ooh, ee, ooh, ee. Can they do that when I try to do that? 
actually the first place I start, let me back up, is can they open their mouth, even without a sound? Can they just open their mouth with my model doing that? Can they stick their tongue out? Can they move their tongue side to side? And then can they elevate their tongue up and lift their tongue up to their nose? Usually kids who have apraxia can't do any of that. They can't do that with a model, depending on how severe or not severe they are. Some children with mild apraxia can do that, but some can't. But even with the children with mild apraxia, it looks more disorganized. There's definitely groping involved. They have difficulty trying to figure out how to make the movement. They can't do it with a model and they can do it more with verbal cues or you give them a model, wait, stop the model, and then see if they can do it. And then they may be more successful. But with a direct model looking at you and doing it, they can't do it because that's the hallmark of a proxy they can't imitate. And there's definitely groping involved. Then I also try to do, depending on what level they are, I may try to see if they can do ooh, ee, ooh, ee with a pucker spread with their lips. I can see if they can puff their cheeks. Now, a two and three-year-old, that's really hard to do. They can't do that anyway. Just typical developing, they can't. But depending on how old they are, with their jaw, I definitely want to see if they can chew 20 times on the right and 20 times on the left with a chewy tube. So I take a chewy tube, put it on the right-hand side and see if they can chew. So I'm looking for jaw excursion, movement, but they should have a regular up and down jaw movement with regular consistency. And they should be able to chew 20 times on the right and 20 times on the left without any holding or pausing or rapid or change in the rhythm or the amount of the jaw excursion at all. All of it should say very regular rhythmic moving for 20 times on the right and the left. So I definitely want to assess that. And then I do like the Kaufman test of speech apraxia. I think that's a great assessment. I like it because it starts with the oral motor, the stuff that I've just explained, but it'll start to work on single vowels, single consonants, and then it'll start to combine consonant, vowels, vowel, consonant, consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel, and then consonant, vowel, consonant. And then it will take it up to more complicated levels. So there's definite levels of that assessment. So it helps you if you just have a child who's at the oral motor stage, you can stop there or you can continue on to the next stage and then the next stage and only do parts of the assessment. Now you can't get a standardized score, but at least you get some good evidence to put in your evaluation. And that helps with medical justification of therapy services and helps with the insurance companies. But I like it because you can give different parts of it. You don't have to give the whole thing. So I like the Kaufman test of apraxia. So I usually start with language, I do our oral motor, and then I do the Kaufman see what I get with that, because ultimately I'm just trying to figure out what they can do and they can't do. But also understand these children haven't had any success with being able to produce different sounds consistently. So you want to be real sensitive because there's a lot that they're not able to do. So in the assessment, I don't want to push them so far that they're frustrated with me right off the bat. You know, I'm trying to also establish a little bit of a rapport. So the Kaufman lets me start and do a little bit, but I don't have to go. But so far, when they start getting super frustrated, I can just stop because they're going to tell me to talk to the hand anyway. So I'll give them the Kaufman and do that as far as I can. So what I'm really trying to figure out is what can they do? I already know a lot of what they can't do. They can't communicate effectively with any sounds if I think they're apraxic. So what can they do consistently? And I want to find out what are all the vowels and what are all the consonants that they can produce that they're successful with. And that's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start with what they can do, not with what they can't do, because this particular group of people have already have a lot of what they can't do, and they already know what they can't do. You're dealing with a very typical cognitive intact child. So they already know a lot of what they can't do. And we want to give them some success because you want to build trust and rapport. So let's give this kid some success with speech expression because they haven't had any. So let's start there. 
So in therapy, I like the Kaufman cards. I like them a whole lot, but I usually start simple. So when I set up activities where they've got to do sounds in their repertoire, and I want to work with helping them to say this to get something. So even though they have certain sounds in their repertoire, they haven't had any success with saying something and getting something. So let's take them back to that level. And it's significantly lower than where they are receptively. And so you're going to have to have a conversation with the parent about that when you feel like you've got some rapport and understanding and you really truly feel like this is a practice of speech because you have to tell the family, look, so I'm going to work at helping them saying something to get something. Now this child's already understanding in five word sentences. And they're like, I know that the cat is spotted versus striped. I mean, you're dealing with the bright little person here, but you're going to have to work on getting them to say cat. And they probably can't say cat to start with. So you just want to work at the I level, the K level, or the T level. And if they can't say any of that, and you're working with a cat, and they can say bees, then you're going to have to name the cat Bobo. Wherever they are, that's where you start, and you set your activity around it. So if they can say Bo, then you want to see if you can work on Ba, B, Bye, boo, whatever it is. So you want to start the consonant they can do and the vowel they can do and then start to build. And then I usually work on very simple vowels to start with. So if they can say bow, for example, then I want to work on ba. Because all you got to do for a ah is just open your mouth. Sometimes I might even have to separate it. Sometimes I may just work on the ah and you may have to shape it. And so a lot of times you're going to have to touch their mouth and help them shape that sound. So you want to give them the cues. And so for the ah, all you got to do is cue. If you've gone through the prompt training, there's some great prompt cues for this. But if you haven't, then you can just help them to open their jaw for ah. So start with ah or try e. Sometimes e is easier. All you got to do for your e is just spread your lips like smile e. That's it. So o is significantly harder than e or ah, but sometimes it doesn't make sense what they can do and can't do. So rock on with it. So you want to start with bow and have them work that. And then pretty much if everything's bow, then I will set up the activity where we had farm animals and we were going to do something with the farm animals and all of them are going to be named bow. And then suddenly, then we're going to try to get them to go ah, and then e. And if they're really getting frustrated though, I'm going to back it up to O, to whatever they can do. So I'll start with what they can do. And then I'll start to push a little bit to see where I can get them and how far I can get them to and what I can get them to do. Can I, what vowels can I get them to do? And I may stay with the same consonant because I teach more vowels at first than I do consonants. So more vowels, and then I'll bring the consonants in and start to build those. But you want to get them so they can regularly produce a variety of consonant sounds, I mean vowel sounds first, and then I start adding consonants. But remember, they can't imitate. So if you say, say bow, say bow, say bow, whatever it is, they're not going to do it. So you want to do like, you want the cat, like you want bobo, bobo, bobo. And then you want to give them something with some cues so they can come close to it. If you're trying to work on ah, and they are saying bow pretty consistently, then you want to give them something close to ah if they can't even get it. If they do any other sound besides oh, then you're like, you throw a party like, whoa did it you said it because they've never had any success with saying something to get something so you want to create the opportunity where they'll be successful and you want to start with where they can be successful and then start to add so once you can start with where they are and in each therapy session you always want to end on a positive so but you want to try to push just and you want to try to see how far you can go and then at home the activity that you want to give the parent is where you know that they are going to be successful if they can consistently say bow then you want to tell the parent set up opportunities so that word is going to be their word for everything and you'll work on specifics later that's down the road don't worry about that now right now your goal is do something to get something because that's the main at each evaluation you always think what's the main thing here where can i make the biggest difference what's the main thing wrong well this child can't communicate 
So what can you do to help them communicate with sounds? And so you want to start there. So their homework is, okay, parent, in the regular course of the regular day activities, I want you to set up things where they have to say something to get something. So you're not adding a ton of stuff to this parent's plate and you're not adding stressful situations for this child, but just in the course of the regular day, like, you know, every child's in a car seat. So it's one of those five point harnesses. So go ahead and tell the parents, say, you know what, you're getting ready to get the child out of the car seat. They're already anticipating getting out. So right before you hit the last button to get them out of the car seat, you pause like you lost your mind and be like, what? You want out? Tell me out. And so what you want to say? Oh, oh, for out. Now I know O and out don't sound the same, but whatever. He can say an O. So let's go with O. So right before you get, say, oh, oh. And then if the child says anything, tell the parent, throw a party like, woohoo, you said it. Hit that out button and get them out. You know, right before you go get them out of the bathtub, right before you just pause, like you've lost your mind, like uh, you want out, you want up, whatever the word is, and just have the child say anything that teaches them, hey, when I say stuff, I get stuff. There might be something to this. All these people around me aren't idiots. And maybe I should try talking to these people again. So you want to start to develop that a little bit in this child. Now, I know the child isn't thinking that, but honestly, kind of, sort of. He's like, look, I tried to talk to you people. You didn't understand it. I cut you out a long time ago. So you want to recreate that chain of communication again. Right before you give them a cup of juice, you want to pause. You want juice? And you just want to get them to use their sound that they can use. So in the course of regular activities, just teach the parents how to put a pause so that there's not a lot of extra stuff that you got to do. And you're recreating that chain of communication again or that opportunity for the child and making them understand this is something that's worthwhile doing. So hang with me, little person. I'm catching up. And then the next session is you want to see how far you can push them and how far you want to go, but you always want to end on a positive, especially at first. So you want to introduce the vowels. And I start, like I said earlier, I start with the vowels, but you also understand you're retraining the brain. You're trying to create speech motor pathways in the brain. So that means a lot of repetition over and over and the imitation thing doesn't work. So you're going to have to do activities where they can use their sounds throughout regular course of activities without a direct model. So I'll use the ball run a lot, like the balls, you put them in the top of this ball run thing, and you hit the balls and they run down the track, very cause and effecty toy. Kids love the thing. But I use a lot of wind-up toys and I'll use the sounds that they've got to make the wind-up toy for them to request, for them to do the balls. And I'll start to develop the ah, e, o, u, whatever they're positive with. And then I'll very quickly start to combine it with whatever consonant they can do. So they can do a B, then I do ba, or if they can do a B, we start with B with all the vowels, and then I'll quickly move to a D, because also children of the praxia have trouble with voicing. So who cares if they're voicing it right or not right at first? It doesn't matter. If they're good at voicing and they're not good at unvoiced, stick with voicing consonants and go with B and go with D and G and forget K, T, and P. So just go with the voiced ones and don't worry about the unvoiced ones right now at this stage of the game. Start with what they're good at and build, build, build their speech repertoire and then go from the single consonant vowel to consonant vowel, consonant vowel. And it may be that they're good at repetitive so when I say consonant vowel, consonant vowel, it may be bobo, baba, bb, boo boo, before they can do ba, be, or ba, bay. You see how I change the vowels, but the consonants stay the same? That's a very different thing, a much harder thing to do, and you have to be really conscientious of that. And that's one of the reasons why I really like the Kaufman cards, because they break it down real simple and build it back up, and it sort of outlines it all for you. So get some of those Kaufman cards. They rock. They're really good. And then I just start to add my own and add my own sounds. And I teach parents how to simplify it to the simplest level. And then we build back up to the real level. Like I love the turtle card to send the Kaufman cards like turtle. You start with ta, ta, consonant vowel, consonant vowel, same consonant, same vowel. 
ta ta da ta toe, I think, then you start to build the turtle word. That's to me is a great example of that. So one thing I've got to mention earlier in the session is children with apraxia oftentimes can't produce really any significant clear word or anything. They've got very few sounds, very few vowels, but occasionally they'll come out with a word like watermelon or screwdriver or apple pie, and then they'll never say it again. So a lot of times parents will say, well, you know, last week they said butterfly or hammock, and they'll say it clear as a bell, never hear it again. That's very typical for children with a proxy of speech. Doesn't mean that they all have to do that. But a lot of times I'll hear a family say, well, gosh, just last week they said cantaloupe. Now, who says cantaloupe when you're three? Like nobody. So there you go, people. I could talk for days about a proxy of speech. These kids are awesome. I love them because they're smart as a whip. And one of the reasons I like it so much is because they're so smart. And they can be so successful. This being said, also, usually children with a proxy of speech, you know, they're going to need a lot of speech therapy. But eventually, it ends up sounding like a severe phonological disorder. And I mean, when I say eventually, like a couple years down the road, they sound very similar to a child with a severe phonological disorder. I'm talking about when they're five, six, seven, and they're talking. So it's a lot of speech therapy. Y'all going to be good friends for a long while, but they really can do great things. And I go from there. I'm also not afraid to use pecs or gestures early on to help them understand that, look, if you do something to get something and whatever that do something to get something method is, I'll use it. Very rarely have I had to go with a Alcom device for a child with apraxia of speech, but sometimes I will. If they're severely, severely apraxic, they're very severe and they're really having trouble just getting past that vowel or that consonant level, then I will potentially after, you know, several months of therapy, six months or so of therapy, I'll go ahead and maybe recommend to do an Alcom device and get them something not to use forever, but just help them understand how to put nouns and verbs and adjectives together. Because think about it, their little brain is still developing, so you can't ignore that part of it. And all of that is a very important concepts that two and three and four year old kids are getting. They're understanding how to put verbs with nouns and adjectives and tell you a story and all that expressive language. So you don't want that part of the brain to be unstimulated. And if they're not saying that and can't say all that stuff and put all those concepts together, then an outcome device, you know, might be something that you would consider to help them to continue to develop their expressive communication skills in whatever way they are. But I don't ever want to give up on the speech thing. Most can get the speech thing eventually, but it just depends on what level it is and where they're going to go long term. Children with severe apraxia, sometimes usually there's other things going on too, might need the device forever, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that's what they're going to need. And hey, that's what we do. But uh, usually they'll end up talking. I hope this information will help you with the kids you're seeing with your caseload as you identify and diagnose and begin treatment with kids who have apraxia of speech. So check out more topics of podcasts that we've done on theworkingtherapist.com. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher. Lots of topics, PTOT and speech. So thanks for spending some time with me and I'll catch you next time on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 